Well, hey friends, welcome back to the series, Women That Create Their Future. This is part two in the series of three women that I'm bringing specially curated stories to you. But this particular interview has been broken out into two episodes. I'm speaking with Stacy Rasky, the empowered overthinker. And it was so juicy, so content heavy, that it had to be broken out into two different episodes. You guys, I'm not even joking. Grab a pen and paper. You're going to want to take notes. I took three pages of notes when I talked to the girl. We're going to dive into this. And if you ever think that you've got crazy brain or you struggle with feeling like you're not enough, or maybe you push people away, this is the episode for you. We go deep, like truly. You're going to want to send the girl a check because you're going to feel like you just did a therapy session, but it's so good. You're going to get amazing breakthroughs. So without further ado, here we go. You're listening to Living a Limitless Life podcast. I'm your host, Sharon Hughes. On this show, we cover mastering your mindset, growing your faith, and becoming the leader you want to be. Every week, I bring you candid conversations featuring world-class thought leaders, change makers, and hope dealers, as well as strategies and trainings to help you get where you want to go in life. I'm really glad you're here. So come on, let's do this. Dale Carnegie of Orange County is proud to sponsor Living a Limitless Life. Dale Carnegie is a global training company focused on leadership presentation, team engagement, customer service, and sales. We help people take command of their work in order to change their lives. Joining me on the show today is Stacy Rasky. She is the empowered overthinker. She's here to tell us how to get out of our heads and how to move forward. But what's so interesting about her is that not only is she an Amazon best-selling author, she's also an Iraq war vet. And if you guys could see her, she looks like a supermodel. So don't let the war vet get in the way. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Stacy. Oh, thank you so much. You're so sweet. Oh, thank you. It is such an honor to be here. Um, I am just such a huge fan. I've been following you getting ready for your book launch. It's been so exciting. So it's such an honor to be on the show with you and, you know, always pumped to spread the word and share my message. So well, I'm so glad to have you. And just so that the audience knows, Stacy and I met through a mutual friend, One Click Lindsay. And One Click Lindsay had Stacy do a live to her private group. And I said, this girl is talking my language and the language of my audience. She's a total, like, you guys, she could ride a motorcycle, like nobody's business. And I was like, dude, when I grow up, I so want to be you. <laughs> <laughs> but then you find out you've done all these other things and your story is amazing. So this is probably going to be a two-parter. I'm just going to start asking the questions and let you take everybody on a journey with you. Sure. Let's do it. I'm in. Let's go. All right. So let's start off first with how did you end up enlisting to be I, I mean, really? You you went off to war? Like, how did that even happen? 
I did. Yeah, actually, it's kind of interesting since, you know, today's Friday, the 13th, September 13th that we're recording. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we just had, you know, 9-11. And it was really interesting because I had actually enlisted prior to 9-11. 9-11 happened. um, I enlisted in February of 2001. So I was just in it was actually in between finishing up all my training. And before I went to my first duty station, oh, look, (laughs) 9-11. So needless to say, I was very busy after that since I did chemical and biological warfare detection. Wow. Nazi. Um, So yeah, lots of deployments and, and yeah, on the front lines in uh, when we invaded Iraq in 2003. So um, actually it was interesting. I moved around a lot as a kid. It was mainly my mom and I, and um, at 16, she decided to move again. You know, we moved from, outside Chicago to Alaska in between my eighth grade year, just before my freshman year of high school and halfway through high school, she's like, I want to move again. And I'm like, no, I would like to finish out school in the same school. And she's like, well, I'm moving anyway. So basically I was homeless at 16 um, and just crashing on friends' couches and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I was really diligent about making sure I finished high school. Um, I went to college for the first two years just because it was expected like it's a should um you know that generation just graduating high school in the 90s like there was so much pressure for that but it wasn't for me it wasn't the right fit so I moved to Salt Lake City took a few years off and then I was like you know I just need a big reset so at 22 um I joined the army active duty fully enlisted um and it was really interesting because I I think for a long time I always knew at some point that would be part of my journey And I'm exceptionally thankful that I did, even though I got hurt when I was in Iraq. Um, So, you know, because people meet me and they're like, wait, you're a disabled veteran? Like, yeah, technically I am. So, (laughs) but, so yeah, it was just um, changing things up. It was just part of my journey, part of my purpose, part of my calling that I knew I needed to do. Wow. Okay. So that's just a whole episode in itself with what you've shared and we have so much more to go through, but I can't imagine that at 16, there you were and you're trying to figure things out. You're basically forced into adulting immediately. Yeah. And it didn't go very well. (laughs) Yeah. I totally get you. I I was actually homeless at 17 and it didn't go really well for me either. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, and what's really so interesting and, and such a huge part of this story, and I know we'll get into it later, but again, the lessons that I was taught as a child, the coping and the traumas that I experienced as a, as a, as a child left me extraordinarily mature for my age in certain aspects and then rather immature in other aspects um, when it came to just navigating life. And that's where I think being thrown into a situation like that really was not the best. And I'm really thankful about um, eventually meeting the people that I, I end up calling my foster parents and taking me in and really um, helping me thrive during my senior year of high school. So, Wow. That, yeah. Girl, like I said before, you are so speaking my language. Like we so get each other. And I know that there's so many listeners that are going, oh, wow. Like you, you guys did that too. Yeah, me too. There's a lot oh. of us. Yeah, a- there are. I meet so many who have such similar stories. So yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Let's circle back. Chemical and biological warfare detection. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Okay. Was that scary? <laughs> 
No, not really. Really? Really? (laughs) I thought it was fun. I'm such a science nerd though. I mean, uh, before this, shifting into this iteration of, of, of my life and really living my purpose. There was a bit of a detour there. Um, seven years as a pharmaceutical chemist (laughs) professionally, because I'm such a nerd with, you know, science. And so I thought it was really, really, really interesting. So the reason, uh, we were so busy, of course, was right after nine 11, the anthrax showed up at the Pentagon. So we had to go take care of that. So we were there for a while and then, yeah, it was just deployment after deployment after that. Wow. Are you comfortable talking about being a disabled vet? Oh yeah. I am very much, you know, I, I, I don't always go with like, I'm an open book because lots of people say that, but they don't really mean it, mm-hmm. but I'm all about authenticity. And there's so much power mm-hmm. in sharing these stories because even though I have crazy, crazy, crazy stories, it's not as unique as people would initially jump to the conclusion that it is, you know? So I've learned in my journey that sharing my stories is really about sharing your story, whoever is listening in the moment that resonates with it. Mm -hmm. And in that process, and this is my favorite part, that it gives us permission to feel the things that we generally do not allow ourselves to feel. You know, we just compartmentalize and push things aside. And so creating a safe space to allow ourselves to feel our, our own stories and to own our stories because we can learn lessons rather just than just staying in a victim mentality and, and blaming and resenting and feeling guilt and shame because I stayed there for a long time and that all led to my rock bottom moment that I share in my book. <laughs> wow. Okay. Before we get into the book. No problem. <laughs> Before we do that, because you got so much, how did you go from soldier to the empowered overthinker? Oh, yes. <laughs> Well, before I became the empowered overthinker, I was more of that crippled by my overthinking. You know, it was so stuck in my head and it was that journey of building a life based on shoulds mm-hmm. rather than listening to my truth. Wow. And so getting out of the army, even though, you know, I got hurt, I'm medically discharged, I get vocational rehabilitation. So they pay for me to go to school. I get my degree in biology because again, it's still a should, right? Even though I took this long break from the original uh, going to college the first time, it was still the, oh, well, yeah, I'm supposed to get a degree, right? Everybody's got to get a degree. So I went back to college and it almost destroyed my marriage because again, being an overthinker, and, and speaking to the people that I speak to, it's the high achiever and high achievement is fear-based versus high performance, which is very, um, more allowing and healthy and balanced. But the achievement is all in that search of that external validation. I need that success to make up for the fact that I myself don't feel good enough. So I need these external things, the success, the grades. And so that's how I leaned into school. So, you know, even though I'm a non-traditional student and I'm married and I have my stepson and, and, you know, we've got the house and the dogs and everything. um, I just hid. That was, you know, my avoidance of my emotions and my relationship. 
in my studies and I just dug in and I dug into the point where it was straight A's and I didn't even realize until the day I graduated, I graduated valedictorian uh, because that's how much I was into my studies. So I did four years of college in three years (laughs) and uh, yeah, it it took a toll on, on us. So I did that because I should. Then I get the corporate job. I get the corporate job because it's safe. And everybody says that's what you do, right? It's the, <clears throat> our, the story of our parents. You, you know, you get the corporate job with the benefits. So you can take care of your family and have the stability. And plus, I was running from the instability I had as a child, but never having really dealt with it. So I'm doing all the shoulds. You know, I become a pharmaceutical chemist and good pay, even though I've got to work midnights and I never see my husband, I've got the benefits. And, you know, over the seven years that I was there, along with all of my traumas and my unhealthy coping, because I numbed out with everything, um, I packed on the weight, I had tons of health issues. um, And it all really culminated in kind of that rock bottom moment of I've got the job, I've got the marriage, I got the dog, I got the house, you know, bought the house, I've got the new cars, I've got all of the stuff that's, you know, the quote unquote American dream. And it was my nightmare because it was just should. Mm -hmm. Who I thought I should be to be accepted, not rejected, you know, and have that validation. Wow. Were you diagnosed with PTSD from your injury in Iraq? Um, well, it was definitely the what the military or VA um, diagnoses the, the PTSD based on the, your time in the military. So, yes, you know, and it was from my deployment. Yes. Um, however, in my trauma recovery journey, what was interesting is after I processed through my deployment and military traumas, what welled up to fill that space was actually my childhood trauma. And what was so eye-opening to me was my downward spiral to that rock bottom moment, the depression, the anxiety, the, all the medications, the health issues, all of the stuff that I was struggling with, um, the, the numbing out with food, with drugs, with alcohol, uh, you know, TV, social media, like just checking out was my coping long before I joined the military. And so that was the most amazing discovery was like, wow, this is way older than the military. And so I started noticing those patterns in myself and my fellow veterans. Like we showed up this way. This is why these extreme situations ended up leaving us with post-traumatic stress disorder because we showed up with unhealthy coping. You know, so many of us were escaping instability and trauma and, you know, middle-class, lower middle-class, poor, you know, growing up in households with abuse and, you know, drug addiction, alcoholism, all of those things we were escaping. And, but that framework was already, that foundation was already laid for how we would deal with these extreme situations later. So, can you describe your childhood trauma so that other people who are listening to this and they're going, gosh, you know, do have I suffered trauma? Like they're not really even sure what trauma looks like because typically we always think that trauma and PTSD is for veterans. We've, we've heard people come back from war starting way back with the Vietnam war. Oh, they came back with PTSD. So could you describe 
how you came to that point where you realized I have trauma from my childhood and not just from war. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was, and, and this is such a great conversation to, to open up the dialogue around trauma, especially childhood trauma, because so many of my clients have come to me, you know, and on the surface, they see the symptoms of like the sabotage in their business. Their business is not growing. They're not showing up. You know, they're not getting the income they want. And lo and behold, at the root is all, are all of these limiting beliefs and these traumas and things that they grew up with. And they didn't even realize they grew up with trauma because so many people feel guilty. Like, well, I was blessed. Like we were stable. We had money when nobody else did, but lo and behold, maybe their parent was a narcissist who was constantly putting them down, Mm -hmm. you know, and that type of verbal and emotional abuse is extreme and will absolutely show up when you are running, you know, starting a business, especially as an entrepreneur. Cause it's all on you, like as a solopreneur. Mm-hmm. So for me, it started very early. My parents divorced when I was two. And then my dad was very inconsistent in my life. Now my, both of my parents were emotionally unavailable in different ways and emotional unavailability. We can feel the disconnect and, you know, under when we're such small children, that's where our sense of identity and connection and learning about love and all of those things comes from, you know, especially implanting um, esteem and belief in ourselves. And if our parents, because all of this is taught, if our parents struggle with esteem and have you know, boundary issues and, and struggle with self-doubt and really don't love themselves, you know, how can they teach us to do the same thing? And so a lot of this is generational trauma, family patterns as well. That's just keeps repeating the cycle. And my, my dad falls in that narcissistic spectrum, you know, as, as a narcissistic parent, um, very much about himself, you know, and, and the, the rare times I did get, to have that one-on-one time with him. Oh my gosh. It was, it was like a drug. Like it's amazing when you got it, but you know, there were always strings attached and you know, things were always, it was just always about him. And then my mom was so um, wounded by her childhood traumas that, you know, she was so amazing and so attentive, but the walls that she had around her heart our relationship and our connection could only go so far. So I learned very early on the way that I got attention was through acting out either good or not so good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And most of the time for me, because I went the high achiever route, you know, when I got good grades, because it was easy for me when I got good grades, guess what? I get attention and what I begin to interpret as love Mm -hmm. is getting this attention, getting this validation. Because this very, very early disconnect from my parents at the simplest way to identify that is feeling a sense of rejection. Mm -hmm. Like, what is wrong with me? I am not enough for them to love me, to give me the attention and the connection that I need. Obviously, we don't interpret it that way as children, but, you know, I understand that now. And so it was always driving my behavior and my performance, my achievement as this constant fear of rejection. So if I'm doing what I should be doing, 
you know, getting good grades, doing good in sports, doing good in, um, you know, other ways, then I, I get that attention mm-hmm. and that validation and that connection. Right. So, um, my grandma, I lived with my great, my grandmother lived with my mom and I as well, and she was an alcoholic. And so navigating those waters, that was interesting. She wasn't always, uh, drinking, but she was more like the binge, binge drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, generational traumas and, and family patterns around numbing out emotionally. Right. We didn't talk right. about emotions, right? We didn't talk about thoughts and feelings. And so my grandma would numb out with alcohol. My mom would numb out with food. My dad was very verbally and physically abusive to myself and my half siblings as well. And so when I was over there in that situation, we would get that. He was, he was really militant too. Like he was reserves and would bring in some of that energy as well. Mm-hmm. In, in the way that he handled things, you know, and it was always a, uh, there was always a threshold where things got explosive and got physical and, you know, got mm-hmm. loud. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I just grew up around a lot of extremes. Mm-hmm. So I started compartmentalizing, you know, I'm just editing things out of my story. Sometimes it was, I moved around a lot too. So mm-hmm. there's a lack of stability and safety. So, you know, I'd pretend I just tell stories or, you know, pretend like I was somewhere else, somebody else or just different ways of being because I'm not going to be at the school long enough anyway. So, right. You know? And again, it was always under that same thing. Let me be who I think I should be for you to like me. Mm-hmm. Or let me be who I think I should be to avoid rejection. Yeah. Wow. That's such a story that resonates with so many people. Mm-hmm. So many people. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was interesting too, because in that process, you know, I've, I've, I've learned from some amazing people and just in my own journey that the balance or the imbalance is with this whole fear of rejection is that you're constantly in a state of self-rejection. Mm-hmm. You're ignoring your truth. You're ignoring being your authentic self because you're not confident in yourself because it's been judged because it's been rejected. Mm-hmm. You know, many times in my childhood when I was doing the high achievement at the same time, the story I was told was, don't shine too brightly because it makes others uncomfortable. So it was like, okay, we want you to be really good, but most of the time, but not all the time. So maybe go for second place, you know, like don't shine too brightly. Yeah. Be, be good, but not too good. And it's, it's interesting that that even translates to a lot of workplaces. They hire you because they want you to be good at what you're doing. But then you get into that weird dynamic within the corporate world of, yeah, don't be so good because other people don't feel good about themselves when you're really good. Yeah. And it's, com- yeah, it's competition and it's judgment and potentially rejection. So how did you get to the point of overcoming all of that trauma to where you became the empowered overthinker <laughs> and you didn't stay stuck in the unempowered overthinker? I know a lot of people and I've, I've set up camp there too. I'll, I'll put my hand up. I've been the unempowered overthinker many, many times in my life. Not fun. 
No, no. And that really was the thing was I, I had no boundaries. And at the same time, I was such an empath and intuitive person. And so, you know, when you take somebody who's so feely and sensitive and at the same time craving approval and fearing rejection, you know, we overgive and overdo. And honestly, it was just constantly giving my power away. And then I was paying the price for that. And, you know, again, with no coping skills, it was, let me just numb out with food or drugs or alcohol or whatever. Um, But yeah, like right at my rock bottom moment, it was interesting because it was the first time I was really present with myself and what I was thinking and what I was feeling in that moment. And here I am standing in the kitchen, bawling my eyes out, just shoving food in my face and just chasing it with a bottle of booze, probably a bottle of wine, knowing me at that time. And I was just finally was like, wow, I am thinking to myself in this moment, I am trying to make my body look as ugly as I feel inside. I hate myself that much. Wow. And it was interesting that thankfully at this time I was going to therapy and I loved my therapist at the vet center because she specialized in trauma. And right after this moment, I was just like, whoa, who am I? I, who am I being? This is terrible. So I went into her office and I said, I'm done. I am throwing in the towel. I am done trying to control anything other than myself. Because that is what was keeping me in this constant state of disempowerment because I was giving my power away to all these other things. And I will tell you, that was my biggest coping was being a control freak. You know, again, the perfectionist, the achiever. So it's the procrastinator. It's expectations. We're nearly destroying my marriage. I mean, I'd already been lost my corporate job at this point. (laughs) My marriage is falling apart. Um, My health, I was 100 pounds overweight had all kinds of chronic health issues, you know, and then you know, the war injury is like herniated discs in my back, but you know, it just all kinds of stuff. It was, it was like just crazy. And so from there, it was just a rebuilding process. And thankfully, you know, the right people come into your life at the right time, because you know, that's exactly how it's designed, right? When you're ready that amazing person is placed in your path and I was ready. And so pretty much from 2015 to now, it was focusing on what do I have control over? How can I be different and leaning into the emotions rather than avoiding them all the time. Mm. And so, you know, at the end of 2000, well, just during 2015 was when I started finding some of my first mentors Uh, going to some of my first events. Some of it I did on my own. Um, You know, so thankfully it all worked out perfectly. And then during that journey, after starting my business as a coach, um, I started noticing my clients were a mirror reflection of me. So I'm like, wow, I'm really attracting a lot of perfectionists and overthinkers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I stepped into the place of owning it. I'm like, because that's me. That's me. Now I have this amazing toolkit. I know I'm an overthinker, but I don't have to stay there. I know that's my default, but that doesn't mean I have to be victim to that anymore. You know, I like that. You don't have to be victim to it. Yeah. And that's where I was. I was such a victim of my past and my emotions and everything. Sure. So now it's, 
empowering myself with controlling what is mine, letting go of what's not, you know, minding who I'm being in my life and my business, how I'm showing up. Mm-hmm. And it's just changed everything. So when did you actually launch the empowered overthinker? <laughs> so, um, 2016 was kind of the initial iterations of the empowered overthinker when I created my journal and stuff like that. And the empowered overthinker is really just what I call myself because I'm branded as Stacy Rasky, but I'm like, I'm Stacy Rasky, the empowered overthinker. And my clients call me the biker business coach. So I'm a biker <laughs> babe, you know, <laughs> ride my motorcycle and it's just really catchy. Um, But yeah, that was kind of the initial iteration, but through this rebrand of really stepping into a next level place of authenticity and ownership of my personal brand and my story, um, really 2018 was a big shift into um, my business being what it is now. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's just sidebar really quick. Cause everybody's going to go, well, what kind of bike does she ride? Like we got to know that. So if you need to see a picture of it, you can go to my website. <laughs> I've got lots of pictures of it are all over. That's how I got the red in all of my branding. Too. <laughs> it's actually coming off this gorgeous red on my motorcycle. Um, it's a funny story cause it's actually a hand-me-down motorcycle, but I love it. It's a 2013 star striker. So it looks like a Harley, but Star is uh, the Yamaha line that's kind of like Harleys or, you know, like street bikes. It's, it's a street street bike. Um, I started originally on a sport bike, but, you know, you get you grow out of that really quick. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. I don't ride a bike, but I'm thinking you ought to do like boot camp for business biker babes and teach people business and how to ride. <laughs> you know, it is amazing to me how... Um, analogous biker life and business life are like what you learn and how many things experiences I've had as a biker and how that taught me amazing lessons that I brought into the content in my business like Mm -hmm. I mean just biker life is all about enjoying the journey Mm -hmm. not about you know not about the destination enjoying enjoying the journey and then here I am business it's the same thing, shifting from high achiever to high performer mm-hmm. about enjoying the journey, not about the final getting the goal or the success anymore. Okay. Yeah. So shout out to Yamaha. Stacy Rasky is riding a 2013 <laughs> Star Striker and she is like, she is PR girl to go. Like she's ready. She's the package. You guys just need to pull her into your branding. I'm just saying Yamaha, let's do it. Yeah, right. Come on. Come on. And I am in the market for a new bike, and I know it's exactly what it'll. I'm kind of on the whole bagger thing right now because as many long bike trips as my husband and I take together, I I need something that's a little more comfy for long rides. (laughs) That's just good for around town. (laughs) You are such a crack up. Okay. (laughs) You've led quite the life, girlfriend. So. Okay. And I I just turned 41 last week. Turned 41. Okay, you guys. I'm going to pull clips from this and put it on YouTube, but you'll (laughs) see wherever I put her face. She looks 30. 
Because when you were talking about how long you were in the service and then going to school and all that, I'm like, how old could you be? Like you enlisted at 10? Come on. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. (laughs) You're the package. Okay. Let's get back to business here because this is, no, we're getting silly. (laughs) We need a moment of levity after some serious Because that that was pretty serious. Okay. (laughs) Was that good or was that good? So that was part one of Stacy Rasky, the empowered overthinker. Part two is coming at you. And I can't wait to hear from you what you think about it. Drop me a comment. I'd love to hear from you. And please hop over to iTunes and leave a review and share this content out. Thank you so much for being here, friends. Until next time, I wish you every good thing.